This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Good evening, Cherries fans, and welcome to this latest show here on Up the Cherries in All Departments. Now, before I do welcome on my special guest, here's a little bit about our sponsors, Dental on the Banks. find out what they can do for you visit dentalonthebanks.co.uk now my special guest today is somebody who saved the cherries he's the author of the book cherries in the red he was also pivotal in the winter gardens movement back in 1997 without him this club would not have survived it is a pleasure to welcome on to up the cherries in all departments Trevor Watkins. Good evening, Trevor. How are you? I'm good. Even better that we go into Christmas with somebody who's going to spend some money in the transfer window. 
Definitely, <laughs> definitely. It's exciting times at AFC Bournemouth. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, but thank you so much for coming on this special show with us. And it is an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. So let's start off where it all began. So you grew <laughs> up in Bournemouth. Um, what were your earliest memories of supporting your hometown club? Well, I mean, memory might be deceptive, but I'm pretty sure I can remember being at that very first game, which was Bournemouth against Warsaw. It was February, it's probably February 74, Bournemouth won 1-0. And it was a, a, a day very much like I'm seeing today, bleak grey skies. Um, we stood on the Brighton Beach end because we could only afford to stand there with the away supporters. I remember it's something like five pence for me to stand and 35p for my dad to go. And I, he would put me on the old metal bars that would be on the concrete in the Brighton Beach end, which is a bit of a gravelly, shingly mess, as you may or may not remember, and bitterly cold. And we would stand just between the entrance, between the old rickety turnstiles and the scoreboard, which was uh, an old metal contraption, which had letters of A to Z. And the the man at half time would take numbers up and put them on, hook them onto the against the letter. And you'd have to have a program so that you could look at whether what you know Blackpool Bolton or whatever the game was was game C, and you'd know what the halftime score was. Um, <laughs> you know, and as things progressed, I remember Dad got me one of those little radios that would tune in to medium wave, which was about all you could get then. You'd have this terrible reception, but as time progressed, you could actually listen to and get better updates as to what the score would be, and that was it really. I remember games like we beaten Crystal Palace four 0 and the, the away end was packed and I was in there with my dad. And that was, again, quite, quite an amazing experience. Because it was at a time when actually, you know, away fans were great. It didn't really matter. They looked, I know there was a lot of violence that time with Leeds and other clubs in the 70s, but we were looked after. And that, that they were my memories. And I used to go with my dad week in, week out. I remember buying a bicycle. He bought me a bicycle once and that meant I missed the game. I was very upset about that. Um, but, you know, when it came to doing a school project about my career as, mm -hmm. I decided I want to be my career as a professional footballer. And that would have been 75, 76. Because um, I left primary school then. I was at St. Catherine's in uh, Hengisbury Head. And I remember Captain Kirk, the physio, who was at the Club of Donkeys years, being so good as to escort me. And I I have one of those old cameras, those thin cameras with the, is it the 110 films in the back. Oh, crikey, yeah, I can yeah. remember them. And yeah. Not, not, not like today, you could only, you had one chance. You had to get it yeah. right. And um, uh, players like Ian Cunningham, Tommy Heffernan, and others who would be practising, and they let me take pictures of them. Um, I'm trying to remember Steve's name, uh, Winger. And, you know, it was great. And I used to go and, I used to go and watch the reserves play. I used to go and watch the youth team play some people may remember people like Kevin Reeves who went on to great things who played for us and that that was it really and that, that got me hooked do you tell us about your career leading up to 1997 and supporting the club throughout your time working in London I was um you know I wanted to be an English teacher I went to Bournemouth grammar school great school loved it you know played football for the third team sometimes the second team if I was lucky loved playing football played rugby loved sport kept on watching Bournemouth Decided I want to be an English teacher, so I took my A-levels, applied to university, didn't get a place. Um, 
I found that bizarre. I said my headmaster, you know, at the end of the day, I had predicted grades that were good. They were A's, a couple of A's and a B I was predicted and I was doing some S levels. So when it came to clearing, I was offered a place at St. Andrews in Scotland. But by then I had my A-level results, which were good. And so the school said, well, why don't you apply to go to Oxford or Cambridge? And I decided that maybe I wasn't supposed to be an English teacher. I should get a law degree. It might be more useful than English. So I decided to apply to Oxford to read law. And I, I did that. And I did well in the exam. I was very lucky. I got through. They had 14 people interviewed for 12 places. But they offered me a place on another deferred year. So I decided not to do that because Reading offered me a law spot. I thought, what am I going to do? And a friend of mine, Richard Williams, who'd been retaking his A-levels at the time, <clears throat> he said that his friend, Hugh Ashley, who was a teacher at Porchester School, was launching a new programme on the BBC called Something Else. And would I like to be a presenter on this programme? So I got this job. I wasn't paid, but my job was to go and interview anybody who came to the south of England. So I, 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 at 18, 19, very spotty years old, I ended up going interviewing people like Meatloaf and UB40 and Tina Turner and Michael Hutchins in excess. And I had UB40 throwing bread rolls at me because they were stoned at the time, I thought. Um, <laughs> I, I, I ended up doorstepping Prince at Terminal 4 at Heathrow. And bizarre, but it, great fun. And so I went to do law. I thought, well, I've got a law degree. I should probably qualify as a lawyer. So I qualified as a lawyer. So I thought, well, I may as well. There's not much direction here because he just kind of drifted into it. All. And I um, I found myself being a litigator in London, which yeah, being a lawyer is actually reasonably well paid, a lot more than a teacher. So I thought, well, I don't mind this. So I carried on doing that and carried on watching Bournemouth play. Uh, you know, I lived, out, lived up in London, but then moved back to Christchurch. And middle of January 97, I'd been watching the news that obviously there's no secret. Ken Gardner was chairman. He was in trouble. The club was in trouble. It was losing a lot of money. Norman Hayward was there. Brian Willis. Um, they'd pumped money in. And it was all going off the rails. I think the club had borrowed £75,000 on the basis that they would repay a hundred within three months, which is like a ridiculous rate of interest. And I was five directors resigned at Christmas 96. And I was at a game against Rotherham. Again, another terribly grey day with a terrible game, really. Um, and I was in the, by this time, rather than stand on the away end, we'd worked our way around the ground. And because I was working in the city, I could afford the real expensive seats. Yeah, the <laughs> derelict, the derelict main stand that had been got from the Wembley exhibition of 1925 or whatever it was. And my dad and I, the benefits of having the most expensive seats meant we got to sit on wooden seats in what was the director's box, which was something of a hovel, and got a cup of tea and a biscuit, you know, one of those sort of rich tea biscuits at half time. But Terry Lovell, the commercial director, was down in the uh, cubby hole as it was at half time. I said, Terry, you don't know me. I'm our vice president. I work up in London for a big law firm. You've clearly got problems. I don't know whether this helps, but, you know, I can give time. I haven't got any money. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, we'd love some help. We'd love some help. We'll be in touch. And about a week later, nothing. So I rang him. He said, oh, no, they, they do want some help. They do want to meet you. And I got this phone call. He said, oh, he came back to me. He said, 
can you go to, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a two-star hotel in the red light district of Bournemouth. They'd love to meet you. I said, who? He said, well, the, the two directors, Brian Willis and Norman Hayward. And I did. But when I got there, there was a guy called Pack. Um, and he, Roy Pack, superstar professional footballer, apparently. Mm. Australian guy who, I'm here to save the club. The club, this is ridiculous. The club, uh, they don't owe money to Lloyds Bank. Nothing can happen. You know, we're not, that, that kind of tenor. They're not his exact words. And eventually, after three hours of listening to conspiracy theories, some of which he actually has some good points that neither Haywood nor Willis should pay out under their personal guarantee to Lloyds Bank. He was right. At the end of the day, they didn't have to pay out. But he was convinced that the bank couldn't appoint anybody to run the club and it was all going to be fine. I did what I could. And three days later, the bank shut the club on a Friday morning. Arthur Anderson were appointed as receivers which meant they were in control of the club. In those days, there weren't really mobile phones. I went, got back from work, no working from home at that time, uh, no pandemic. You know, I ended up going downtown with some friends, got back home, as I would do on a Friday night. And there was a message on my voicemail at home saying there's a meeting between the club, Hayward, Willis and Pack, and the receivers on Saturday morning. Would I go to it? So I was playing football that day for in Bournemouth League, Saturday League Division Four. For um, trying to remember who I was playing for at the time, but it wasn't a very it was a reserve team. So I was on my way to the game, and I rang my friend Richard, who was I'd had my radio show with all those years previous, and said, "Look, I've just been to a meeting where I've been told that the football league are going to put Bournemouth out of existence by Wednesday." So this afternoon's game against Bristol City away is going to be the last game ever. And we have a choice. We either raise enough money to cover the losses for the season. At that point, the club was losing £100,000 a month. So the, the league wanted to see that the club could complete its fixtures. So it needed to raise £600,000. And in the meeting, um, Paul Whitehead and Alan Lewis, who were the receivers, They'd said to Pack and Hayward and Willis, look, we represent the bank. They're not putting any more money in. Hayward would go, I'm not putting any money in. You're crooks. You shouldn't be appointed. You shouldn't be in charge. I'm, it's my, you know, my club, that kind of approach. And so they looked at me and said, well, you want to help. Why don't you raise the money? So I went on the radio show with Richard. I went down the BIC, went and did a, an interview and said, look, this is what I know. <laughs> I arrived at Kinson to play football. And the guys in the changing room said, you're late. Why did we just hear you on the radio? And people started ringing up, offering to help. And Terry Lovell, bless him, the commercial director, he called a meeting at the club for Sunday evening. Now, this scared Roy Pack because he was on to me uh, like a dog on heat, basically. He did not want to lose control over this process. And he got me to go to this hotel where I, bizarrely we ended up in some bedroom with the curtains closed with some guy, I can't remember his name, that he claimed was going to be, again, a saviour. He then said, we're going to go and see Max Clifford, the publicist who's died recently, and for a meeting. We didn't have a meeting. 
we turned up at the Carlton Hotel and tried to locate Max. And he door, um, Roy Pack doorstepped him. Max hadn't got a clue. Um, but Roy was trying to spin the story about receivers shouldn't be in charge, da-da-da. And some of people may remember that eventually um, there was an article in the Daily Mail, I think, which said, why is, why is Max picking a number on Bournemouth? And he, Max was then starting to target me. And Pack really didn't want to lose control. We had the public, we had this meeting on the Sunday night at the club. And I kind of worked that one out at that point. And I said, look, if if there's going to be a chance of saving the club, the fans need to get together. We need to be independent of you, Mr. Pack, and of you, the receivers. We need, and my my game there was, we didn't know who was the who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, or if anybody were good or bad. So five or six people, Ken Dando, great guy, lifelong fan, accountant. A Andrew Kay, again, lifelong fan, still goes sometimes to the games now. Um, and uh, Peter Aldersley, uh, a guy called Andy Noonan, who's an architect. Um, John Hiscock, again, who still goes to games. John Saunders, who was sponsor then, still sits at the games now. Um, Michael Lowe, who, the vicar, and who sadly passed on not, not long after, but his wife still goes to the game, Pat. You know, these people all said, we'll help. And we got a committee of six. And little did I know then that what would then happen was that every day from then through to, well, it didn't stop in June, but for at least the next six months, my day would consist of get up 6 a.m., go to London, work, get back 7 p.m., go straight to meetings in Northbourne, meet with the committee, work till 1 a.m., go home, go to bed at 2, get up. And that was life for six months. So that's how it started. But we, we rode our luck. That day on the Sunday night, the council were there. They said, why don't you have a public meeting? Here's a theatre in the town, the Winter Gardens. Use it. Go and do it. Go and have a meeting. And that's what we did. And 3,500 people turned up. And I choreographed it. I was sitting on the stage. We collected, what was 35, 40,000 pounds. Nowhere near the 600 enough of a message to the league that the town wanted to save its club the next morning someone rang me actually someone in the Hayward family who didn't get on with Norman and this became clear there was Norman on one side other Haywards on the other and they'd all fallen out they didn't respect each other necessarily and this other Hayward Jeffrey Hayward said I'll give you a hundred thousand pounds and then the Times rang up and said We'd like to make you our face of sport this weekend in the newspaper. By Saturday, which I think we played Blackpool at home, eight and a half thousand or eight thousand two hundred and one, as I remember, turned up. And I haven't prepared. I just kind of lodged in my brain. We started seeing that the town supported its club more. More money came in. So we didn't have to give the money that the, we created a trust. And eventually we decided to try and make a bid to buy the club. And you know, the, the, I remember being in a meeting with Lloyds Bank and they said, we've got a bid from Mel Bush, who's actually Jason Tyndall's father-in-law. Mm -hmm. We've got a bid from Norman Hayward and we've got your bid. Yours is the lowest. You're the most inexperienced, but we'd like you to buy the club. I said, well, we've made our offer. And... They said, well, we'll lend you the money because we're sitting on all the, this real estate. It, it's our land. We don't really care 
now we've done the hard bit of putting receivers in. We don't care if the club goes bust because we paraphrase, we can build houses on this. We'll make our money back. We'll have a bad, a bit of bad PR, but we'll live through it. So why should we give you the land and give you the club? So we struck a deal. And, you know, people like Peter Phillips criticized it subsequently, but he wasn't there at the time. I'm not sure that necessarily he would have understood the intricacies of insolvency law. We had very good lawyers at Leicester Aldridge advising us. And they said to survive, there's two things the club needs to do. One, it needs to pay a fair price for the assets. Two, <clears throat> it needs to pay off the existing creditors. The existing creditors were, you know, there's, there's lots of rules as to how you deal with these things. And we basically agreed a deal where we would pay everybody 10p in the pound. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Over 10 years. For people who say they don't think that was a good deal, they don't really know what they're talking about, in my view. Um, because this is no, no disrespect meant. Because if you're involved in it, and as I have now been for 25 years, that was a very good deal. Because it bought time. It bought opportunity. What it didn't buy was how you transform a club that's losing a million, million and a half a year into a club that makes profit. Because as the supporters and the fans, we raised about 150, 200,000 pounds. I persuaded enough with money to raise about half a million. So that's 650,000 there or thereabouts. On a club that's losing one and a half million a year, had you know to be able to sell beer in the supporters club, we had to pay off the supplier who would cut off the pumps unless we cleared that debt. To be able to get people through the turnstiles, we had to upgrade certain things. To be able to function, we needed players. The first player we bought was Justin Harrington on a free from Leicester. You know, it wasn't easy. And it's very easy, however, if you're on the outside to poke fingers and say, Andrew Kay, Ken Dando, you didn't know what you were doing. Um, Perhaps we didn't, but we were the ones who stood up. And there's a great picture of Steve Fletcher, Eddie Howe, <coughs> excuse me, Ken Dando, Andrew Kay, and myself on the south end, <coughs> which was the old home end, the day we completed the deal. Champagne going off. What people didn't know was that Andrew Kay and I had been sitting in the supporters club until midnight, 1 a.m. the night before, wondering what we were going to do because we figured we have enough money to last three months. And I had to ring every single investor that had put up 5,000 or more, the Rod Taylors, the Andy Noonans, the Peter Aldersleys, and the many, many more, and say, do you want us to do this deal or not? Because it could all go pop again in three months. Well, you ride your luck and you make your luck. They all said yes. 
we took the club over. We didn't even have permission from the Football League to kick off at Northampton, where we happened to win 2-0, first game of the season. But we went there. We won. And luck came to us because we sold Matty Holland for £800,000. That was the, the opening bid on that was 150. And I negotiated that up to 800. That's what I'm good at. But we had other people like Andrew and Ken who were good at other things. And it made for a great team spirit. Um, and, you know, Mel Machin got the team going. And those of you might remember Frank Rolling oh, and yes. our auto windscreen semi-final against Warsaw, where we were cruising at Warsaw. I think we won 2-0 there. And it was all looking really quite good at Bournemouth until Walsall scored a couple straight after half-time. It was all looking a bit rocky. And then Frank Rolling, who'd never been known to be, I mean, he had a nosebleed going up to um, attacking penalty area. I don't know what he was doing up there, but he wellied the ball in with eight minutes to go. And we got to Wembley. And what a great, what a great occasion. Put those two things together, it bought us a lot of time. And, you know, first club rescued by its community, effectively crowdfunding at its finest, never been done before. Um, and we set a trend. Was there anything, Trevor, or anybody that you felt was responsible for putting the club in the situation that we were in before you took over? And secondly, um, for the younger fans out there, um, comparing it to what we've got now, what was that financial situation like? How dire was it? Well, dire because it was going to go out of business, completely go out of business once and for all and never be, never, never recover. It was a wing and a prayer job. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely, there were two or three occasions when the club was minutes from going out of business. And it has been subsequently. And it's all part of an evolution. You know, I, I, I'm going to comment on whether Ken Garden knew what he was doing. Um, I think frustratingly, you know, Norman Hayward, for example, is a hugely successful businessman. He's shrewd. He's successful. He knows how to make money. Um determined lot of characteristics and together with brian willis they actually made a good double act but they inherited a situation they hadn't necessarily been part of they'd passed the club on a bit like jeff mostyn had done uh in, in years later when he passed it on to paul baker you pass on you sell the club and you trust what's going to happen and it all gone off the rails i mean the the club had got into a situation where directors and this has happened time and again since directors put money up to help support the club and never got it back. They lost it all. Mm -hmm. And so Norman and Brian did a good job. And so did the people before them. Um, I think everybody who's been at the club has been there with the right intent. I don't, well, actually there's probably two people, maybe Paul Baker and um, uh, Savramuto that was, who was in there as chief exec. I'm not sure what their motives were, but generally speaking, Eddie Mitchell, mm -hmm. who can divide opinion, Max Demin, who doesn't divide opinion, has been amazing for the club. Jeff Mostyn, who you know, wasn't a Bournemouth fan. Tony Swayzen wasn't a Bournemouth fan, became chairman and for a time. You know, everybody comes in and, and comes in for the right reasons and the right qualities to try and ensure they do the best by the club. So I don't think we've got anybody you can point out and say, it's all your fault. I said that the time, the time that came subsequently, you know, ultimately... Peter Phillips oversaw a sale and lease back. And a lot of people have criticised him and said, well, you shouldn't have done that. I know he's pointed the finger previously at us, but you can't point the finger at Peter in that sense because 
he had the hand that he was dealt and he had to play it. <laughs> I would have done what he did. Now, Jeff comes in and then looks to sell. And, you know, face value, Paul Baker and Savramuto were a good good team. I've seen, I saw Savramuto, he was putting a CEO down on the beach in Rio because I was speaking at a conference, all very nice, um, with Tony Adams. You know, you, you couldn't make it up sometimes. But I think, you know, Eddie comes in for all the right reasons. He meets Max. Max, he brings Max in. Max does everything for the right reasons. <laughs> I, I mean, I brought Peak Six into the club as 25% investors in 2016, 17. They came in because they wanted to be involved and help. And I don't think anybody's evil and there's nobody there with bad intent. I said, we had that blip with Paul Baker and that's been long documented as to what happened at Chester and other clubs. And I don't know if that was necessarily the right thing for the club. Um, but again, I'm sure that within that, he was looking at doing things for the right reasons. It's just differing degrees. Um, going back uh, to 97 now, there was, um, if I remember rightly, um, we had a, a charity match against Southampton. Uh, we did. Friendly game, didn't we? Um, Friday night. On a Friday night, yeah, I remember that. And um, I remember a certain Mr. McDougall <clears throat> making this fantastic. Um, what kind of impact did he have at the time when, when obviously you guys were all busy trying to save the club? What kind of impact did he have? Oh, yeah, fantastic. I mean, I mean, he's iconic. I mean, nine goals in the FA Cup game, and he's diving header against Aston Villa. You know, all of this uh, is quite amazing in terms of his track record and what he's done. So his impact was significant, and he's iconic. He's a lightning rod around which fans could say, you know, him turning out, we got, I had over 10,000 at that game. Mm. Him turning out on a Friday night against Southampton, again, what a great support from a local rival to come and do that for us, no cost. Uh, he, absolutely amazing. And he said, I can do anything, anything I can do. He said, Trevor, you've done all this for nothing. What can I do to help you? I said, I'll tell you what, would you like to play Bournemouth League Division 4 for my reserve team on Saturday <laughs> afternoon? So bless him. We, we, he came down the wreck. He registered. So for a group of chaps as us to play with a legend. And he was hilarious. Great fun. He, and he played. He played the whole 90 minutes. You know, fantastic. Um, I'm sure he's not forgiven me since. And we're still friends now. You know, we still catch up and see each other. And that is the nice thing, you know, that camaraderie. A lot of the people who are still alive from that time, we see each other at games. We still sit, well, obviously we built the new stadium, but we still sit in the seats we've always sat in. We still chat about things and catch up. We're all a bit older. We all still think we look as young as we did then. And I see Ted, I see Ted in the States. And, you know, it's quite incredible, really, but we, we do our best. What struggles would you say, Trevor, that you had throughout your time as chairman of the club? Was there anything that cropped up or things that were there from the previous regimes that just kind of stuck with us at the, for that time? Well, how are you going to pay the wages at the end of the month? And which player should you sign? You know, we made a bit of money in the auto windscreen, so we thought we needed a striker. Why don't we buy Roger Bolly? 33 goals. I think he got 20-something the season before. Yeah. On paper, fantastic. Mm-hmm. No one checked whether his legs still worked. Mm. So we bought this player for £100,000. 
you know when you make a decision when we were in the top six and we needed to raise money to pay the wages because that was the problem none of us had money mm -hmm. so the the vision is great the community bit is great being involved with supporters brilliant if you haven't got money you still got to pay the wages you still got to and we had to be clever on how we traded because that's where we could make money and the problem was you know people think oh trevor you went and sold our left back you went and sold jamie vincent i didn't sell him a load of us sat for a long time what can we do how do we do it how do we make and what's the how do we mitigate risk mel machin is manager he inputted right mel we've got to sell somebody what can you survive what can you cope with how do we play this and he said i can play krista warren at left back what if we give you somebody i've got willie huck I've got Richard Hughes. Obviously, Richard's with the club now. We, I lose my left back, who's my corner taker as well. And he's a good left back. I can cope. That position I can cover. Uh, and, and I think the first game after Jamie went, we won. But then we hit the buffers. But teams do that. And we went into the last game playing Wrexham where we needed a result that would keep us... We end up seventh on goal difference, I remember. Mm. And that felt terrible. But equally, one of the decisive moments that saw my end of my time as chairman was when we had a bid from Wigan to buy Eddie Howe and Richard Hughes for 1.25 million. And it was cash. Yeah. And it would all go into the um, it would all go into the, the the club. And the decision then was do we buy, do we sell and take the money or do we stick? And we had a board meeting. Five of us voted. Three said, "No, don't sell." Two said, "Yeah, we should, we should, we should sell," and so we didn't. So as a result of that, we 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 were short of cash. We didn't have money to pay the wages. And Tony Swaysland actually didn't say it to me. He sent my friend Andrew, who was CEO, to see me and said, basically, Tony says he should be chairman. He'll put the money up if you step down as chairman. You can stay as a director. And to be honest, I got to the point there where I never took money out of the club. It was all consuming. My view was you should be at every game. You should work on behalf of the club. You should do everything you could if you took that position. And fair enough. Tony wanted to be chairman. So I stepped down. He became chairman. Obviously, that didn't really last that long for him in, in the end. Um, and I stepped down knowing that I had done everything I could do with the best interest of the club at heart. At the end of the day, you can't win. And that's something I learned. You can't win with everybody. Um, the irony was we're a group of fans that did our bit to rescue the club. We happened to be figureheads. Within weeks, there was a new independent supporters group questioning who we were. And people were saying, has he ever been to a game, that Watkins bloke? Um, but anyway, um, I remember Roy Pack saying, Watkins is only in it for his own good. He's doing this for his career. You mark my words. Now, the irony was, or is, I wasn't. But <laughs> in actual fact, it has transformed my life. Um, I wouldn't be on here if we hadn't done this. And exactly. you know, here am I working with most of the top European football teams, working with buyers, sellers, working across professional sport and being paid for it, which is incredible. Um, there were pretty, some pretty down moments in between times. But, you know, they're, they're the kind of things I learned. How was the Dean Court, which we enjoy today, funded? And um, tell us about the uh, Kendando Stadium appeal. Yeah, well, the problem was we had no money. We, we had no money to build a new stadium. 
the council was shutting two ends of the ground. And because they shut two ends of the ground, um, we had to build a new one. Um, and the, the answer was, well, how on earth do we go about doing it? So we can go back to the supporters. That's going to raise some money. We can go to the council. What, a conservative council going to lend money to a football club? No. Well, we demonstrated that we had a value as a community club. We were doing things the council would otherwise have to pay for. So they agreed to put some money in in return for services. That was a new innovative way. The Football Foundation said there was a limit, a percentage limit on what you could get from them as a grant to build a stadium. However, they had an annual football match against the Football Association they wanted to win. So they said to me, because I knew the guys there, well, could we borrow some of your players? I said, when you're playing Friday night in Ealing, I said to Mel, I said, look, they've got Oxford United away in the league on Saturday. There's quite a lot riding on this because we're trying to get them to give us three, three and a half million quid, which is much more than we normally do as a percentage. Can you help me? So he gave me, um, gave me two players and we took them up to Ealing on a Friday night. And I think the football, the football uh, foundation were 2-0 down to the FA after 20 minutes. Put our two lads on, they won easily. Uh, and we got our three, three and a half million. Um, but ultimately, again, this is, we had to build. We could only build three sites. That's all we could afford. And even then, things went a bit awry because we needed to find somebody else. There was no institutional lending, no bank lending that would do this. So we found a guy called Stanley Cohen and he was, uh, again, I, I think I'll keep it short because he was prepared to help. And perhaps the terms on which he was prepared to help were more onerous than people thought they might be. And so when it came to it, Glenmore investments as they were or well, Glenmore Holdings they they had more of a hold over the club and you know st without Stanley's money the stadium wouldn't have been built so and the stadium needed to be built and that all got sorted in time but you know remembering this was a club that was losing a million million and a half a year who was trying to keep up we'd had some success but it didn't have the rich benefactor that we have with Max Demin and now a Bill Foley um, and so the Ken Dando Stadium appeal was another great way of doing it. And eventually, you may or may not remember, we end up with a sort of uh, a, a um, fundraise from the supporters as well. And it all worked, worked really well to get the new home. But continued losses, continued debt, a continued need to keep up, then leads to, well, what can we do next? Well, we'll sell the stadium and lease it back. Great for clearing debt, great for res resetting but then you don't own that asset anymore. And then, it obviously, I, the years after Peter, when I went to Paul Baker, um, sorry, with Jeff stepping in, Jeff doing things all the right way, Paul Baker goes off the rails and then it goes back into insolvency again. I remember I was in Florida working. I got a phone call from the Football League who wanted to ask me when the club had last been in administration or in receivership so they could try and determine which points penalty they should give them. And of course, all of this led to the most amazing year under Eddie Howe. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this special show. Do remember, part two will be coming 
tomorrow. So please do hit that like, that subscribe, and that bell button to be alerted to when that drops. Also, do check out of all of our other interviews if you are wanting more Cherries-related content before listening to part two. You can find interviews with, of course, Eddie Mitchell, who was name-dropped within this interview. We've also got special guests as well that we've had on, like Charlie Daniel, Steve Cook, Steve Fletcher, of course, another man that was name-dropped as well, and many, many more. So please do remember to hit that like and that subscribe and bell button. But part two will be along tomorrow. So until then, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you tomorrow. Up the cherries. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.